This is an ABC podcast. I believe the loss of Kale is my line in the sand and it should be a red flag for the rest of the world because at the back of my mind, I'm always thinking how many other islands in the Pacific have gone through this and how many other people are affected in this way. When the coral reef is dead or it's badly affected, yeah, I'm sure that those women will be struggling to get shells and feet and all that. It was very clear that women knew exactly what to do when, when the disaster warning came on the radio. And men often relied on the women for this information firsthand. Whether you live in the highlands of Papua New Guinea or on a small atoll nation like Tuvalu, all of us in the Pacific know that climate change is very real. You can see it with your own eyes, can't you? Extreme weather, rising sea levels, lost and damaged reefs and mangroves, fresh water and land for farming is becoming harder to find. What might surprise you, though, is that it's women in the Pacific who are the ones most affected by these changes. How are you, you ask? Women are more likely to die or be injured during a disaster than men because we carers for children, elderly and disabled people. When food and water become harder to access or more expensive, we're most affected. And we have less access to health services than men, which is a problem because diseases like dengue, typhoid and malaria are on the rise with climate change. But guess what? We're not sitting around complaining about it. It's women who are at the front line of fixing the problem. I'm Hilda Wayne. Sisters, let's talk about how Pacific women are fighting climate change. Climate change is having a huge impact on the Pacific. Cyclones, floods and droughts get more extreme every year. In many places, our traditional lands are disappearing under the water because of rising sea levels. And as fresh water and land for farming become harder to find, we're having to walk further to collect water and find new ways of farming. Today on Sisters Let's Talk, you're going to meet women who are leading the way in climate change action in the Pacific. Betty Barker is one of them. Betty became interested in climate change when she was a student at the University of South Pacific in Fiji. A man from Marshall Island stood up in the middle of the room, begging everyone to share his story and save his country. That's when I realized I didn't want to just be a standby, just listening to this. I wanted to do something and I wanted to significantly contribute towards uh, change. Betty is currently working on a PhD at Monash University in Australia on the gendered impacts of climate-induced migration in the Pacific. My research is definitely looking at the impacts of natural disasters and climate change on people's livelihoods on everyday life. And I'm particularly looking at what happens when communities and families are displaced from their homes. And unfortunately, this has now become an annual experience. And so every time there's flooding or cyclones, families have to evacuate to community halls or schools or safer, higher ground. And unfortunately, because of the frequency of these natural disasters, communities have to reset every single time. So their property is damaged, their agriculture is damaged, they lose their sources of income. So their livelihoods are disrupted. Specific people are very resilient, but it it doesn't take away from the fact that it's exhausting to be able to reset and clean and recover 
and rebuild every single time. What are some examples of how climate effects affect women and girls differently from men? In the Pacific, as in every other country in the world, women and girls and gender non-conforming people remain underrepresented or often overlooked within decision-making spaces. Their ability to access uh, resources and power within decision-making spaces remains limited. However, their agency as independent thinkers and innovators and protectors of their community and family enables them to really think on their feet and always be the first responders in the communities. So despite all of the gender disparities within communities, when I was doing fieldwork, it was very clear that women knew exactly what to do when, when the disaster warning came on the radio. And men often relied on the women for this information firsthand. So the, the gender division of labor actually worked really well in the communities. But as soon as it came time for decision making, women were for some reason overlooked and, you know, undervalued in their spaces. So I think that is one of the key things that has been a consistent challenge in the region. While I was interviewing people in the field, it was heartwarming to see the amazing things women were doing in the communities and how they were keeping traditions alive, but also communities together. But another thing that really, really warmed my heart was the art of storytelling and singing and dancing that actually kept community spirits up. The role of women as storytellers and artists was one of the key things that actually strengthened community resilience. I think Pacific women have really held on to their roles as caretakers, as first responders, but also as storytellers and healers of the community. That's Betty Barker, PhD candidate from Monash University. This is Sisters Let's Talk with Hilda Wayne. One of the women doing amazing things on the ground to combat climate change is Gladys Habo, former Miss Solomon Islands and current climate activist. She remembers the day she discovered the island her grandparents lived on had disappeared beneath the waves. So this island was home to my grandparents. And so for me, the loss of Kale really instigated the passion that drove a lot of my climate advocacy. And I've seen how it has affected our people. And I understand the need to really merge such observations with the science that is out there that explains why and how climate change comes about and as well as what we need to take heed of for the future. Earlier this year, Gladys was awarded the prestigious Commonwealth Points of Light Award for her work. And in between her day job as a pharmacist, she's a UNICEF Pacific Ambassador for Climate Change. So from a very young age, I have developed this very particular interest in talking about climate change, particularly after witnessing uh, the loss of our beloved island, Kales. So for me, I believe the loss of Kale is my line in the sand and it should be a red flag for the rest of the world because at the back of my mind, I'm always thinking how many other islands in the Pacific have gone through this and how many other people are affected in this way. And I just, I'm not going to allow my children's identity and future to be taken away from them. I don't want to grow old and say to myself, oh, why, why didn't I do more? I'd rather grow old and say, at least I did my best. 
to fight for our climate safe future. Do you think that we need to declare a climate emergency for the Pacific? Uh, yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a very important topic that we should be discussing with the UK Pacific high level dialogue. I was selected to represent young people. And in that speech, I basically called on all Pacific Island leaders to declare a climate emergency in our Pacific Islands because I really believe that we need to accept in our own islands the seriousness of climate climate change and its impact on our people. And at this point in time, I don't think that we've really acknowledged that. I've seen Jacinta Arden do this for New Zealand. She declared a climate emergency in New Zealand. I believe this is what Pacific Island nations should be doing as well. And if we are able to do this, or at least several of our islands declare a climate emergency before COP26, this will bring out a much more powerful message to the rest of the world, especially going towards this annual event for climate change. And it will really tell a bigger story of how climate change is affecting our people. And I I believe in this way, we'll get more attention and more engagement and more people on board in this fight with us, especially from the global north. How has climate change affected you as a person and your family in Solomon Islands? Climate change has really affected us um, in in many different ways. But particularly as a female, I've seen how it's affected a lot of women in our country. I've seen that it has increased the vulnerability of our women, especially due to the various social, economical, cultural reasons that we have in our different islands. I've seen that women are pretty much the majority in a lot of rural communities and they do a lot of work because our communities are heavily dependent on local resources for survival. And so women are often responsible for household water, you know, cooking, washing, subsistence farming, things like that. You know, these tasks that we perform that are often time consuming, they are labor intensive. And so with this extreme weather events, you know, having flooding, increased tropical cyclone intensity, sea level rise, saltwater intrusion, our mangrove ecosystems dying, the loss of our land for gardening, All this together, it's impacting not just our food security and our health, but also our safety as females and our overall social economic well-being. You know, nowadays we have to paddle our canoes even further or walk longer distances in search of good land for gardening or fresh water. And so in this way, I believe females are are really, really vulnerable to harsh climate conditions. And this is saying all this, I'm not even talking about other inequalities that women are subjected to, such such as, you know, poor education, poor housing conditions, exposure to violence, poor health, you know, sanitation, hygiene, all this. On top of it, we have to go through this climate change impacts, which is quite sad. And that's why I, I feel women have a greater role to play towards fighting for climate justice. What are some of the traditional methods or practices in your community to combat the damage that climate change is having in Solomon Islands? Different communities are doing um, different things. Uh, So in my community, we are building seawalls using just stones that people go and get from the deep sea and they come and then just build along the coast to protect from further coastal erosion. We are building on higher stilts 
because we can't really relocate to other places at the moment. So the houses have been built on higher stilts to account for sea level rise. We're planting more mangroves because we're seeing a lot of our mangrove ecosystems dying out as well. So just little activities like that, using material that is affordable and accessible to us, because I think one of the issues that we face as people in island nations like Solomon Islands is that accessing climate finance is still a difficult thing to do, especially when it comes to doing activities for adaptation and mitigation. So at the moment, we're just doing what we can with the resources we have. That's former Miss Solomon Islands pharmacist and eco-warrior Gladys Habu. Did you know that in Papua New Guinea, women are responsible for between 60 and 80% of all food production? And there's a heavy reliance on what you can gather from the mangrove forests, which surround many parts of PNG's coasts. It's this environment where Mazela Manuwaive grew up and it's shaped her path in life. My dad was actually a marine biologist and I grew up on an island called Motopur Island Research Center in Central Province. And I grew up in this place for like almost 25 years of my life. So that in itself influenced my interest in looking after the environment. Mazella is PNG's first female mangrove scientist and she works in the Nature Conservancy. Mangroves are a really important marine habitat. It is one of the largest, one of the most productive ecosystems in the marine environment, both because it provides goods and services to coastal inhabitants or villages, but also it has ecological services where it provides services such as being a natural barrier against storm surges, stabilizing the coastline, protecting us from floods, as well as in terms of supporting the livelihoods of coastal communities. It is very important, particularly in PNG, where 90% of the population is rural and dependent on the natural resources. Women especially harvest mud crabs and fish from the mangrove because mangroves are usually very accessible to coastal communities where settlements are are set up by the sea. So it is a, a very important ecosystem to women ensure the mud crab has a stage of its life in the mangrove before it goes out to the inshore, out to the pelagic uh, waters, open ocean, and then comes back to the mangrove. So it is a really important service that the mangrove provides in order to sustain food security, especially for our women in PNG, because they depend on these mud crabs for cash income. And then that cash income is used to pay for basic things like school fees for their children, buy basics like sugar, salt, you know, those store goods for the kitchen. What is the biggest risk to the health of mangrove forests? Globally, the biggest risks to mangroves are from aquaculture. So basically, large areas of mangroves are removed to set up shrimp farms. In PNG, the local threats are basically harvesting for timber and firewood. And it is the threat or risks of losing um, large amounts of forest is higher if the villages are closer to towns or if they're on an island where the mangrove area is small. But most of our forests are still pristine, but with population growth, the main main threat to our forest is through harvesting, unsustainable harvesting. We are slowly experiencing threats that are, are coming from clearance or settlements. And if there is not enough land due to urbanization, semi-urban villages or traditional villages that are close to 
town settings tend to remove a lot of the mangroves to accommodate for, for new settlements coming up due to population rise. How is an environment impacted if mangroves are over-harvested and cannot recover? One of the important functions of mangroves is also as, as a terrestrial forest and as a tree, it acts as a carbon sink. So we, we have been hearing a lot of talks about blue carbon. Carbon in mangroves is stored in, in the roots in the form of soil, it stores up to 50% more than terrestrial forests. So mangroves act as a, a house for storing carbon dioxide, which if it was released into the atmosphere, it would cause global warming and then result in climate change. And what are some ways that you are working to protect mangrove forests? We are running basic mangrove uh, ecology and restoration trainings for the women in our communities. Not to say that our women don't already have that knowledge. They have depended on that resource for years. And as long as history goes back in their community, they have that knowledge. But um, my job, especially when I go run these trainings, is to provide the science side of mangroves. For example, blue carbon. How, how are mangroves important in storing carbon? I help them identify different species. So if they're restoring one species, seedling might look different from another species seedling and help them to set up their nurseries if they're doing replanting in degraded areas. Our project, uh, Mangrove Market Mary, we are helping to link women who sell their mud crabs to market. So, for example, one of our sites in Milan Bay, women from this village called Sagarai supply uh, the largest amount of mud crabs to Alotau. The thing we've been doing with them in the last year was helping them to set up corporations where they could have the buyer go to their village so that they don't have to travel distances to sell their crabs because it takes almost three hours for these women to travel into town. The money that they get from the mud crabs is again spent on the PMV and other stuff and then they're left with just a little amount. So what we are doing is trying to link them to markets by bringing the market to their village and they have a corporation where they just remain in the village and sell their mud crabs to the buyer. That's wonderful work. I'm really impressed. I'm from the Highlands myself, so I've just <laughs> learned a lot just, just listening to you. Amazing work. And just a final question. How are women responding to the work you are doing in the communities? Women are feeling really empowered. The fact that, you know, they are attending this kind of trainings and having a voice in the community, especially having these trainings and are able to influence the kind of decisions that are made around mangrove conservation. The fact that PNG is a patrimonial society women's voice is not had as large as it should be, especially for the resources that they use. I've just learned a lot from Mazella Manuavi, PNG's first female mangrove scientist. You're listening to Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia. When the impacts of climate change is on your doorstep, or should I say it's come through your door and it's now in your house, you might feel helpless that there's little you can do. You're not a scientist. You don't have a platform to spread the message. Don't despair because every step you take helps. I want you to meet Ella Onera Botticella, who is a teacher in Santo Vanuatu, and she's been making a change through her students. I asked her how climate change is impacting her community. The grasses are all dried up and when you are walking along the ground, grass are coming out and some of the fruit trees, like they have the normal season for bearing fruit. For example, the mango trees, that is the time. July is not a season for mango tree, but now we are harvesting ripe mangoes. Why is it important to teach synthropic agriculture to students and community members in Santo? 
way of doing agriculture that we are not damaging our soil when we try to rebuild the forest to have a big diversity for our future generations. So the main aim is to replant back the forest that we are losing in our in our schools and to help us grow um, more traditional crops to help us have enough food in the school. And so you are also encouraging students to use pandanas weaving to create strong climate messaging. Why are you using weaving messages instead of simply painting signs with those messages? We see that women are the main uh, person inside the family in the social welfare of a family. And uh, we introduced the idea of weaving is to um, revive back our custom and culture and identity as a Nivan. What advice do you have for other communities facing the same environmental damage that you also have in Santo? We are emphasizing women to go back to the traditional way of doing things to help us to um, avoid those, some of those impacts of climate change in our area. That's Ella Onera Botticella, school teacher and eco-warrior from Santo Vanuatu. Your environment shapes your world. So what happens if you grow up surrounded by rubbish? This was Marina Kyle's playground. Her father managed a local tip in Samoa. And it wasn't until she started working there that she noticed something. There is value in recyclables and and these rubbish that he always collects. Marina founded the Samoa Recycling Waste Management Association in 2017. Because the more we can recycle, the less we need to produce which helps in the fight against climate change. One of the aims is to promote the three R's, reuse, reduce, and recycle. And we've actually added return because a lot of waste that we collect here in Samoa, it's not sustainable for us to be setting up a facility to recycle. So most of the recyclables that we we collect, we send overseas. What sort of waste do you see in, in Samoa and um, what happens to the, to this waste? One, we have plastic and we have a one million plastic bottle initiative where we are collecting any drinking water bottle. And this initiative is trying to close the loop on the plastic bottles. So it's bottle to bottle recycling. Our next waste is electronic waste. For so many years, we've been importing into Samoa and nothing has been going out. So TVs, computers, phones, you name it, have been refrigerators, have been coming into Samoa. And once it hits the end life, everything tends to be thrown out, um, take, ends up at the at our landfill or just disposed in our backyard. And we also collect glass bottles and then we have a machine that crushes it into sand. And the aim there is to look at different ways where we could use this glass sand. And we're hoping to trial it in brick making, headstones, marking of roads and sandblasting. That is truly remarkable, Marina. Samoa also has an issue with oil. Samoa is estimated to import 8 million liters of oil and our landfill doesn't accept the waste oil. So there's nowhere to take the waste oil. And um, usually it's either being stockpiled or illegally dumped. This waste stream is very important to us because we, Samoa and most of the Pacific Islands, our livelihoods depends on our oceans, mm-hmm. you know, our lands for growing crops. We hope to collect and look for a, a, a recycling company that can take the um, waste oil off us. You have worked in a very male-dominated industry, but... Your association is very different. Our team here at Swama headquarters is powered by nine beautiful young women. And <laughs> we have 
We only have three um, men working for, for SWAMA and we are partnering with one of the schools that teach students with disability. I think we all need to practice the four R's. Reduce, reuse, recycle and return. Marina Kyle, founder of Samoa Recycling Waste Management Association. Just like all the women you've heard on the program today, Naomi Longa's work has been influenced by her surroundings. Naomi, who is from Kimbe in Papua New Guinea, runs a program for women so they can monitor marine protected areas in their coral reefs. Naomi, how did this all start? I first, you know, become interested in protecting the ocean. When I was still a kid with my dad going out fishing and coming back to the shore, and I was always curious about the ocean. When I saw people using destructive fishing to get whatever they need from the, the ocean, that's when I, it started to grow in me. Like, I need to do something about it. What impact will permanent damage to reefs have on women and their community, in, the, in your community? Yeah, in, in Kimber, like, you see most women going out collecting shells out in the reef. They do fishing as well. And they go to the mangroves to collect shells. When the coral reef is dead or it's badly affected, yeah, I'm sure that those women will be struggling to get shells and fish and all that. You'll notice as well that if the women don't usually go out to look for those shells and other resources from the sea, they, they look for other ways. Sometimes they just roam around in, in the village and then most of those women, they ended up having babies, and then there's more problems after that. With the program that we're doing, we are also empowering women to take part in something good for the community, and we try to decrease the number of domestic violence and population increase and all that. So with those activities, when women are involved in it, it brings down all those issues in the community as well. Because there is a study in some of the developing nations in the world that if you educate a woman, then all those domestic violence rates would come down, bad rates would come down, and small businesses would start to grow. The most important thing is good decision-making would come out from women. Women feed the family, and they make sure that children are fed before they sleep, and they are clean. So that's basically what we are going for as well. As the team leader at Sea Women of Melanesia, how do you and the women you train in your organization collect data on the reef? First of all, we identify the different marine animals. And then from there, we usually do the snorkeling training. And then from there, we went on to collect reef survey data. So that's when we're using data sheet and underwater paper. And with a pencil, we usually swim along the reef using the survey technique that we usually use. So that's when we usually collect data of the fish and marine invertebrates. And if there's any interesting pelagic animal that we saw, like turtles, stingray, or sharks, we usually jot them down as well. What are you noticing about the reefs in Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands? I, I can notice that over the years, there's changes happening. For example, the obvious one is human population that's increasing. It can affect the reef by a lot of mouths are feeding on the reef. That's when you see the number of fish comes down. The other thing I have seen is the recent coral bleaching. What are some traditional methods of conservation and uh, regeneration of our reefs in PNG and Solomon, Solomon Islands? Basically, in Melanesia, they usually select certain reefs and they put that reef on 
they call it tambu area. That's the restricted or the prohibited area. Like people don't usually go there to fish or collect marine resources there. They put a restriction on that reef and they leave it for a few years. And then after a certain period of time, maybe two or three years, they go back and collect from that area. Back then, people usually follow that traditional practice. When you go out into the villages and you talk to people about, you know, the importance of conservation, are they listening to you and noticing that it is really a problem? Oh, yes, yes. You can you can see from the elders. They've been living in the village for more years and they've seen the changes over time. Naomi Longa, team leader at Sea Woman Melanesia in Papua New Guinea. Today you've met inspiring women across the Pacific who are fighting the effects of climate change. We're using our traditional knowledge to come up with solutions that work in the Pacific. And this makes sense. We women in the Pacific are some of the world's first people to fully understand what climate change does to land, food, culture and health. So we're some of the thought leaders in how to start dealing with the problem. This is inspiring, but I can't help thinking it's also a bit unfair. Pacific women, especially those living sustainably through subsistence farming, have contributed the least to the planet's climate emergency. But we're the ones who feel it the most. I hope we continue to use our traditional knowledge to deal with climate change. But I also hope that our sisters and brothers in the industrialized nations do their part too. Perhaps if they hear our stories, they'll see what the future holds for their countries too. And they'll be more motivated to live more sustainably and tell their governments to take action on climate change. Thank you so much for joining me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia, a weekly show where women come together to talk about issues that are important to us. Do you have a topic you'd like us to cover on this show? Do you have some feedback on this episode? I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message anytime at the ABC Radio Australia Facebook page or email sisters at abc.net.au. That is S-I-S. TAS at abc.net.au. Next time on Sisters Let's Talk. My dream is I wanted to be a rugby player when I grow up. Went to a girls' only school and we hardly play rugby. So I and some of my friends, especially at home with my boy cousins, played rugby with a bottle or a, a stick that wrapped with a piece of rope. I asked my dad for permission to go and play rugby and he said no. Our women athletes in the Pacific breaking through the grass city. That's next time on Sisters Let's Talk. Sisters Let's Talk is presented by me, Hilda Wayne. It's produced by Amanda Donaghy. Our supervising producer is Inga Stunzner. Executive producer is Justin Kelly. And our commissioning editor is Ilaria Walker. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production. I'm Tasol Nabungim you next time.